0: And all of God's people together said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, what a great joy it is for us to come to this place of worship today. And I want to invite you to the 12th chapter of Daniel. I know some of you a year ago thought we would never, ever be here. But we've been in the book of Daniel for almost exactly a year now. It's pretty incredible to think that we've been walking through. I hope it's been good for you to journey through this Old Testament prophetic book. Thank you. (laughs) Me and Kathy got something out of Daniel. Praise God. Anybody else? Have you enjoyed being in Daniel together? Amen. This prophetic book is incredible. And that's not a clap for me or for my sermons. That is strictly for God's Word. God has given us such a rich, rich text here. Now, today we come to the end of our journey together in Daniel. And as we do, I found a verse in Daniel 12 that may actually be fitting for the entire sermon series. In fact, it probably could be a life verse for Hardy Street Baptist Church in light of the preaching ministry of Scott Hanbury. There may be uh, weeks that you walk away and you'll learn this verse today and you'll say, You know what? I could have quoted this verse after that sermon. I want you to read it with me. It's Daniel chapter 12, verse 8. It'll be on the screen. You ready? Here we go. I heard what he said, but I did not understand what he meant. So I asked, how will all this finally end, my Lord? I bet some of you have walked out of church on certain Sundays and said, that's exactly how I feel. I heard what he said, but I don't have a clue what he meant. Lighten up, folks. I thought that was funny. As I look at this though, today we're not going to look at one specific verse in these last chapters. We finished up chapter 10 last week. We talked about Daniel praying and then praying and pouring his heart out before God. Uh, the answer came through an angel who fought in the heavenlies. A spiritual war ensued and he was held up, but Daniel kept on praying and he broke through and God gave to him a vision. Now, as we think about this book, the book of Daniel stands is a very unique mix of the Old Testament. Why? Because it starts out as history, it gives to us a historical narrative, and then it makes sort of this really strong transition from history to prophecy. If you remember around chapter 7, we begin to see prophetic visions, and God gives to Daniel a picture of the future. He tells him what's going to come. He tells him all about in meticulous fashion, in very detailed ways, when the Messiah would show up, and what would Happened in the last days. Daniel had amazing visions. He recorded uh, the the, uh, interpretation of dreams for kings and then he himself had visions. We saw in chapter 9 this miraculous vision and in 10 and 11 and 12 it's sort of a final section. Now everybody kind of look this way because I want you to hear me. Daniel sort of moves back and forth. It pans very close in and pans out. If you remember in chapter 9, there was a picture of 70 weeks that were going to happen. God gave him this clear picture of a time frame. And as we investigated and studied that, we saw that God was giving very detailed pre-written history about what was to come. There are other times that Daniel gets a broad view. If you remember, one of the visions was of a statue and each of the parts of that statue had to do with subsequent kingdoms. It started with Babylon and then went to the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. We've seen that flesh itself out in history. So all that God gave to Daniel has come true. And the time frames that Daniel was given have come true. There's still yet prophecy left to come true. the very end times, and so as we talked about this, chapter eleven is another one of those very meticulous. Uh chapters. It deals with five kings that lead all the way up to the time of Jesus. So we're not going to walk through these. Now, if you want to do investigative study, we'll talk a little more about this uh, on Wednesday this coming week as we finish up and talking about the kingdom of God. But it is amazing to me to see how accurate he was. He talks about a king in the north and a king in the south. And if you know anything about history, there were warring factions that settled on both sides of Israel. And Israel literally was a political football. They just fought in the middle over and over again. So here's what I want you to get out of all of this. Today I'm going to give you a broad sequence of the timeline of the events that will happen from the cross to the end of days. And so in your listening, guide, uh, if you'll pick that up in your bulletin, there's a little picture that runs down the side. I want you to write in these lines as we go along. And then from time to time, you're going to flip this thing sideways and begin to fill in this picture. And I want you to walk away today, because a lot of times people ask, what are the next things? What's coming up? I want to know about end times. So that's where we're going to go today. Instead of studying verse by verse through chapter 11 and then 12, I just want you to see that the meticulous nature of what Daniel has given us in in the historical and the prophetic settings give us a clear picture of three things. And I want you to write these down. Number one, God is sovereign. Sovereign. God is sovereign. That means he rules, he reigns, that he is in control, he is over all. We sang just a moment ago about his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. We know that he is omniscient, that he is omnipresent, that he is all-knowing, and he is everywhere present. God is sovereign. Can I tell you that my experience in these days is that most Christians do not live their lives as if God were sovereign? We wring our hands and worry. We worry about the economy. We worry about the gas prices. We worry about political statements. We worry about pandemics. Now, should we be wise? Yes. Should we be cautious and careful? Yes. I've said this to you since last March. I'm not going to go lick buggies at Walmart, but at the same time, I'm not going to live my life in fear of an invisible enemy that's going to keep me trapped. None of us should be that way. And I want to encourage you. We need to be careful. We need to be smart. We need to be wise. But you need to trust in a sovereign God. Uh, If you believe that your number of days are numbered and they're held in his hand, if you believe that he knows the number of hairs on your head, easier to count some heads than others, I realize that, but God is in control. Amen? Now, this is a statement that sort of flows. God is sovereign and that gives us hope. I don't know about you, but I am a hope-filled person. I look forward to the future with great anticipation. The best still is yet to come. We know that heaven is coming. I've read the end of the book. And if you have looked forward, Jesus Christ won, so we win. Right? And if we believe that, we believe that God is sovereign over all, that He's bringing this world to Himself. He is summoning us to be with Him, as He did in Mark chapter 3. The powerful picture that we need to see is that it builds confidence and hope. And Daniel, the theme of this book is literally nothing more, nothing less than this. God is sovereign, and that gives us a powerful sense of hope so that we can faithfully endure Daniel teaches us how to live in a world that is hostile to our faith and to our God. Daniel knew that. He lived that personally. Kidnapped as a teenager, swept away to Babylon, uh, brainwashed and indoctrinated and enforced into a world system of thinking that denied the one true living God and worshiped a plethora of gods. Sounds a whole lot like where we live more and more. All around us there are competing ideologies, there's competing world views. And when you recognize that God alone is sovereign, that gives you hope that all that he said will happen, will happen. And when you have confident hope in a sovereign God, you can faithfully endure anything. You realize that there's very little in your life that you have control over. But you do have a sense of control over your attitude toward life. And that ought to be framed against the fact that God's sovereign. When I believe God's sovereign, what's going to touch me? What can man do to me? I'm trusting in my sovereign God. I have hope in him. I have confidence in heaven. And so all those things come together. Does that make sense to you this morning? church family? If you leave and get nothing more, then I hope that you would say, we've spent a year in this book to learn that my sovereign God gives me hope that will help me endure to the end faithfully. So how do we bring all this together? Satan had tried his best to keep Daniel from hearing and understanding these visions that he received and to present, uh, to prevent God's truth From Coming forward but what I want you to see is the big picture. I want us to see the scope and sequence of where things are headed so that you'll see that and it'll build even more confidence. I believe sometimes we lose sight of the forest because we're not just looking for trees. We're looking at every vein on every leaf and twig on every tree. We want to know every precise symbol. Well, God did not give us the book of Daniel so that we would know exactly when he's coming back again. We would know exactly all of the events, but he did give us the nature of end times. And he gave us a picture of his rule throughout the nation and throughout history. So that's what we're going to look at. Let's start with the cross of Calvary. So if you'll take your paper and you'll turn it sideways and we'll go to this very next picture. So you're starting here and I've broken it up so I can make it bigger on the screen. You'll see we're going to start at the left and work across to the right. We start with the cross of Calvary. And at the cross of Calvary, number of things happened. Obviously, death was defeated. Jesus Christ overcame the grave. Separation is no longer a permanent state. We can be reconciled with a holy God, the source of life. Our sin had caused us to be cut off from him. Uh, the wages of sin is death, separation. We were separated from a holy God. But Jesus died on our behalf as a substitution, and he was a sufficient substitute. And his death paid on your account the penalty for your sin if you trust him by faith today if you've trusted the lord jesus christ when the father looks at you he sees paid in full he sees jesus payment of his death on your sin but he didn't just leave us there he didn't just pay for our sin he rose again so that we could have eternal life that'd be a great place for a hallelujah or an amen aren't you thankful that jesus christ is a risen savior We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Doesn't matter what people say around us, but Jesus Christ, the one who lives and ever intercedes for us, has promised to come again, but it started there for us at the cross, and the cross kicked off two things that I want you to see. And one is the church age. So write that down in that parentheses. It's the church age. We are right now in the church age. That simply means this. That God is in gathering a people for himself from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. Let me tell you something else that's going on. And this won't be on the picture, but you can jot it down under it. Do you know how to draw a star of David? It's just two triangles. It's a six-sided star. Draw that underneath church age. Because two things happened after the cross. God began to gather from the Gentiles a people for himself. And Israel, I want you to draw that star and then draw a few lines through it. Don't You're not being disrespectful. I want you to see that a partial hardening began with the nation of Israel. Not all of them rejected Jesus in wholesale mass. They're not uh, kept away from coming to Christ, but they rejected him. The Bible says Jesus came to his own and his own did what? Received him not. I know Jews that have come to Christ. I know Jews that believe Jesus is their Messiah. So that is happening, but there is a partial hardening of the Jews. It says it in the book of Romans, and we see that. So the church age was established, and God pushed the pause button. He'd been working with the Jews all the way up until that time. Christ came, and when he came, they rejected him, and because of that rejection, he turned now his program of salvation to the Gentile world. Now, I want you to jot down Deuteronomy thirty two twenty one. This is a beautiful thing that perhaps You've never seen before and it's not Anything new but I'd never Seen it in light of this I found A commentary on Daniel from 1927 and the Pastor that wrote that commentary took me to Deuteronomy this week and I want you to hear This beautiful thought God said in this song of Moses You have made me jealous by what Is not a God and I will make You jealous by what is not a people God said in essence you that are to be my people my bride have walked after other gods you've made me jealous you remember in the 10 commandments God said I'm a jealous God you're to have no other gods before me he said well I tell you what since you have gone after other gods I'll go after other people." You mean he had selected the Jews as his people and now he's going to reach beyond them? Yes. In fact, that verse, Deuteronomy 32, goes on to say that through a stupid nation, I will make you jealous. Guess who the stupid nation is, folks? <laughs> It's not America, it's the Gentiles. If you've got a different translation, what it says there in Deuteronomy 32 is through a foolish nation of Gentiles. Through the Gentiles, I will make you jealous. God's drawing a people together for himself among the Gentiles to make his own people jealous. After the cross, his, initiation, his invitation to salvation turned sharply to the Gentiles. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. How many of you know what a blue chip athlete is? Anybody ever heard that term? You know what a blue chip athlete is? They come out of high school and a blue chip athlete has shown themselves to be elite at their position. And every coach wants them. They want to go after those blue chip athletes. They want to, to connect with them. They want them to come play whatever sport at their school. Now there's a problem sometimes because sometimes blue chip athletes carry another chip. You know where it is? Right on their shoulder. You know what happens? They feel like I'm entitled. I'm better than everybody else. I don't have to work as hard. They all want me. I mean, they all want to connect with me. I mean, blue chip athletes are sought after. I mean, you know, it seems like Alabama go after blue chip athletes. Seems like Auburn pay a lot of money to get... Oh, never mind. That's another story. Blue chip athletes, right? You know what the best thing a coach can do if he finds a blue chip athlete with a shoulder chip? He replaces him with a cow chip. He'll find a walk-on that is a scrub player. He doesn't have all of the skills, and he'll put him in, and he'll put that blue chip guy on the bench. And that that cow chip player will show him up. He'll embarrass him. He will out-hustle, out-work the others, and he'll do good for the team. And hopefully that blue chip athlete will wake up. Israel is the blue chip athlete, Israel is the chosen of God and God set them on the sideline and said yes to the Gentiles and it was from the very beginning his plan because he promised Abraham I'm going to bless all nations through your lineage so a Jewish savior named Jesus a Jewish Messiah would be offered to all it wasn't plan B but God gave to Daniel a picture 69 weeks will pass the Messiah will come, he'll be cut off I'll begin to deal with the church and the 70th week is yet to come we'll get there in just a moment so as we think about this as we move forward we see that the cross happened and that brought in the church age and a hardening partially of Israel and the next thing that will happen that will end this church age is the rapture so let's go to the next picture the rapture just draw an arrow off to the side the end of the church age we've said this before church family don't lose me here There is nothing else on the prophetic timetable of the world that needs to happen for the rapture of the church to occur. At any moment, Jesus Christ could return for his bride. At any time, we could hear the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet blast. And we can hear him gathering us together as we meet him in the air. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The rapture of the church will be the next event. And he will take us out. Now, I want you to hear this. The reason that it will happen, the very next thing that follows the rapture is the tribulation. So in those brackets, write that. So I just kind of scooted down a little bit. The rapture happens and then the tribulation. Now, you need to know this. The tribulation is not just persecution. The tribulation is the wrath of God. The tribulation is God's judgment. Sometimes we think it's just going to be a sense of, of evil unrestrained. No, God is still sovereign. He's over all. And so God is pouring out his wrath, his judgment. Why do you believe, pastor, that we'll be spared that wrath? I think there's a pattern in scripture. God promised that the flood was going to come. And did Noah go through the pains of that storm? No, God kept him from his wrath. You see that over and over again. Lot was kept from the wrath of God. The widow at Zarephath kept from the wrath of God. One of my favorite pictures happened in Goshen in Egypt. God's people were slaves in Egypt. And one after another, God brought plagues upon the Pharaoh. Do you remember those stories? Y'all nod and say yes. We'll be here a while. I'll go back and make you turn to Exodus if we need to. We've been in Daniel a year. I'm not scared to be in Exodus all afternoon. All right, no, we're not going to do that to you. As the plagues came, there was darkness. That was one of the plagues. But it says that there was light in Israel. There was light in Goshen. They were spared from the plagues. And those who trusted God by faith had their firstborn spared. God spared them. Let me give you another verse. You may want to jot down Revelation 3.10. I think this is significant for us. God says very plainly, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, um, I will protect you from, it literally means I will keep you from the hour, the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world. And those who belong to this world. You you see the tribulation is the commencement of the 70th week of Daniel. Now that may not mean anything to you if you're new with us in our study. I encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the sermons that we did on chapter 9 and 10. God gave Daniel a time frame. 69 weeks will happen. The Messiah will be cut off. The church will begin. And at the end of that is the rapture. That will start a 7 year period of time that we know is the great Tribulation. Now, I want you to hear this. We don't overlap with Israel. So we're out of the scene and God reestablishes work during that tribulation time with Israel. We enjoy Israel's blessing, but we have not replaced Israel. God still has a love for them. And for seven years, you'll see the judgment of the world and God has ordered uh, during that time men to repent. In that time, there are 144,000 witnesses that are sealed and they're sharing the gospel throughout the world. And there's a difficult, unspeakable horror going on because a man that we know simply as the Antichrist comes to rise as a world power. And he encourages people to worship him. In fact, encouragement is a, a weak term he'll kill people if they don't and there's a worldwide slaughter and there is earthquakes and wars and bloodshed and it is a devastating time and those seven years are a time for God to bring back his people to himself and to judge those who have denied Jesus Christ throughout this age so you have the cross the church age the rapture the tribulation and then you have the second coming of Christ let's draw an arrow coming down At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ will appear and he will come to the earth. And what a joy it will be. You need to hear this. At this point, Jesus is not coming for his church. He's coming with his church, Brother West. We are with him. We have been with him since the rapture. And we've been in heaven with Christ. And now we will come back and he will establish his rule and his reign here on earth. Now, some of you are dialing in and some of you are drifting off. As you think about these things, I just want you to get a clear picture. God is sovereign. Everybody say that with me. God is sovereign. Let me give you the next part. That gives me hope. That gives me hope. I can faithfully endure. God is sovereign which gives me hope and confidence. And because I have hope and confidence in a sovereign God, I can faithfully endure what I'm facing during these days, knowing that Jesus is coming back for me, knowing Jesus is going to take us away, knowing Jesus is going to issue uh, wrath upon the earth. And we can read about that in Revelation 4 through Revelation 19. You read all about that tribulation period. Now, let's move forward just a little bit more. At the end of the tribulation period, we see Christ not coming for his church but with his church church. And it's called at times the second coming or simply the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the Messiah came and the Messiah tells us that he will come again, that he rose victoriously and he will one day return to rule. He will return with his church and there will be judgment of Israel and there will be judgment of the nations. The Jews and the Gentiles will be judged. Let's go to that next one. So you have the second coming of Christ and in the next parentheses, just right, there'll be judgment upon Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, the Bible talks about this being the separation of the sheep. And the goats. He gathers the nations before his glorious throne, and he separates them out. He says to them, to those that are sheep, "When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you clothed me. When I was naked, or when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was uh, naked, you clothed me. When I was in danger, you you came, you visited me in prison." You watched over me. When, Lord, did we do those things? When you did it to the least of these, my brother. And then he'll turn to the goats and he'll say the same thing. And they are cast into judgment. They're cast into fire. They are cast away from him. You see, here, it's unique. He separated them and the Old Testament saints are there. So you have the church. You have the resurrected Old Testament saints, and you have the the resurrection of the martyrs of the tribulation, those that died after coming to faith in Jesus. Now, some people ask about this. What what is all this going to be like? When Jesus comes after us, the Bible says that we are given glorified bodies. Do you remember that Jesus' body had upon it scars that were nailed print in his hands in his side in his feet there were scars he was given a resurrected body we don't know fully all of what that means or what that looks like but we know that we will be resurrected in full we will not be ethereal spirits floating around on clouds playing harps but that our physical existence in the presence of God forever will be gloriously similar to this except not under a curse I'm just thankful that Jesus in his resurrected body, one of the first things we see him doing, he's on the beach having a fish fry. Anybody like fried fish? Praise God. That sounds like heaven to me. It doesn't say it maybe in some translation it says that there was banana pudding afterwards or hush puppies. But Jesus on the on the beach is eating fish with his disciples. There's a physical nature to heaven. Sometimes we get so scared of the unknown and not knowing. By the way, Wednesdays after this coming week, we'll talk about the kingdom this week. But after that, we're going to move into a discussion about heaven. We're going to be answering some questions about heaven. So I'd love for you to join us at 10.30 in the morning or at 6 at 9. All I'm trying to do is give you a, a chronological picture here. So the cross happens. It starts the church age. The rapture leads to the tribulation. The second coming of Christ establishes a time of judgment of the Jews and the Gentiles. Move to the next one, if you will, and let's see. Now we see the kingdom period of God. Christ will be king in Jerusalem. He will enter through the eastern gate. He will establish his throne and his rule for a thousand years. There's a brand new world to populate. And those that live through the tribulation are there. But Jesus will rule for a thousand years. And in this kingdom period, and this is one construct. I realize there are other understandings of these things. Some people believe them symbolically. I believe that a literal rendering, when we look at Daniel and Matthew 24 and Revelation, it ties together with a clear picture. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. The Bible says that Satan will be bound. Just think with me about that for a moment, Church. Can you imagine what this life and this world would be like without any satanic influence? I mean, think about that. The the earth will rest. It seems like there'll be renewal. I love this. In Matthew, we see Jesus, Matthew 19. He says, in the regeneration, you will rule over the 12 tribes. The word regeneration is usually used for a soul, for an individual that trusts Jesus. He's talking about nature. He literally is saying that the earth will be rejuvenated. There will be a rest. The kingdom will be a special, special time. A thousand years. Can you imagine how many generations our country has been a country for a fraction of that time. And you think of all of the population growth in America, but a 1,000 years, how big could the earth get? In fact, the Bible says that some questioned the, the idea that death may be arrested. In fact, you realize that in the Old Testament, there were people that lived for a long time, right? You remember Methuselah, 900 plus years, didn't make it to a 1,000. Now we're talking about a 1,000 years. As sin progressed or digressed, lifespans got shorter and shorter if you live in america you got a lifespan here if you live in south asia it's probably here different place but during the kingdom of god it begins to expand again in fact isaiah says things about a man living easily to be a hundred and having children and and moving forward in his life now what would it be like for a child that's born 500 years into the kingdom there's no satanic influence they still have a sin nature but they don't have the world and the devil. They've got flesh, but not the other pushing forces. They'll still need to receive Christ. They'll still need salvation. How are people saved today? By grace through what? Faith. How are people saved in the Old Testament? By grace through faith. How will people be saved in the kingdom? By grace through faith. Think about this though, they grow up in a world, a child in the kingdom of Christ, in a thousand years, Satan is bound and and the earth is rested and there's this glorious renewal and you would say to that child, you know what, the world used to be corrupt, really? Yes. Did you know that Jesus came to this corrupt world and they brutally murdered him? No way. I mean, they can't fathom that Jesus is ruling and reigning in this new kingdom, but they would come by faith. You have to take it by faith. It'll be a unique challenge in those days. Uh, A lot of times, you see, when kids grow up in a silver spoon mentality. You ever seen kids that grow up and they have it easy? Come on, folks, this audience participation time. If you grow up in the kingdom era of God, you're growing up in a time period that's really easy. I mean, I see some of those kids, and I don't have any doubt in my mind why some moms eat their young, right? I mean, you see those kids, and you go, that that little spoiled brat needs, there's an app for that. We can take care of that, right? Maybe I've gone off to meddling and quit preaching. You've seen those kids. Don't look at me so spiritual. You've said the same thing. You were at Walmart. They're pitching a fit, and you go, if I had that kid for five minutes, I could take care of that. You've said it. In the kingdom, they would have it really good. And it would be an interesting thing to think of how they would come to faith in Christ. What I'm saying to you is very, very simple. You need to have a picture of this timeline. The cross of Christ was part of this overarching timeline that Daniel told us about. And it moves us forward. Revelation 20 says that at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. Let's move beyond the kingdom. I want you to see this. We'll come to a time of great white throne judgment. God will gather together those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, and they will be cast into outer darkness forever. All that is not of the kingdom of this world will be gone. Now, as we move through this very quickly, I've got to give you very, very quickly seven words you need to hear. And I'm going to give them to you. Let's go to the next screen. I want everybody to see this. I want you to jot those words down or grab your phone and take a picture of it. God created this world in an age of innocence. We called it Eden. What was the end result of Eden? Man rebelled, walked away from it. So from the time of the fall of man all the way to the flood, man started living with a conscience. God told him what was right and wrong and gave him direction. What was the end result of that? The Bible says in Genesis 6, just before the flood, man's thoughts were continually on evil only always. And God wiped the slate and started with this man named Noah. And then government comes in. This is human government. It's a sense that they were now given the responsibility of the death penalty. And man blew it. This goes all the way to the Tower of Babel. And at Babel, they rejected God and said, we want to make a name for ourselves. So when that was over, God called one man. His name was Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you. And that promise is going to extend to all nations. That's what we would call the patriarch era. Where did that lead them? To Egypt? To bondage? They miserably failed. Do you see a pattern? God did something great and we blew it. Over and over again. So God leads them out of Egypt and he gives them the law. He says, if you'll follow these commands, this is the very best kind of life. Make me your top priority. Worship me alone. No graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. I mean, he just said, live this way. How many of us have lived up to those ten? None of us. We blew it. And then comes the place of grace. Jesus Christ emerges and says, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, how were you saved before that? By grace through faith. Faith of promises to come. Go to the next one. I think maybe some errors. I just want to just see this. There's kind of a line here. It's not that it was one way before and a different way after. It's just the the timing. If you got saved before the cross of Christ, it was because you placed your faith in God's offer of grace. You were looking forward to promises to come. Now, I, I want you to hear this as we kind of wrap this up. Because the very last thing you see is the kingdom of God. And God will take everything there. Revelation 20, you see the great white throne judgment. And then he by fire burns up the whole thing. And what does Revelation 21 say? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God starts all over again with it. And then the heavenly city Jerusalem comes down. And when the heavenly city comes down, it says the dwelling place of God is now with man forever. Amen, Hallelujah. That's what we're looking forward to. When we say the best is yet to come, that's it. Oh, by the way, there was one intermediate step. You see, when we got to the place of the great white throne judgment, show the last one, hell. Hell is very real. And folks, I don't want to end here, so we'll go back to a picture of the book of Daniel. I think we've got one. Everybody draw in and look this way. Why have I taken this morning's time to give you a Uh, An overview of the sequence of life and reality. Because the single most important thing that you can do today is to consider this claim. Who do you say Jesus is? And it doesn't matter ultimately who you think he is or who you want him to be. He is. In fact, over and over again, he said, I am. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Do you know him? I'm not asking you, are you a church member? I'm not asking you, are you religious? Do you do do religious things? Do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Do you check a list off and say, "I've, I've had quiet times for the last 10 days. Boy, look at me. I told our college students this morning in Sunday school, God is not interested in your spiritual life. He's not impressed by it either. He's interested in you. He's interested in you. His desire is that you would come to him and receive him by faith and be forgiven of your sins and experience eternal life and be taken out of the judgment that is to come. Now, I know that I've probably raised more questions than I've answered, but I wanted to give you a very simple scope and sequence. So, on that last line was the word hell, and then we went from there to two lines at the very end, new heavens, new earth. God is going to recreate all things. He'll make all things new. The beauty is God's in that business today. He'll take your broken pieces of your broken heart, your broken life, your broken dreams, and he'll mend them back together in Jesus Christ if you'll trust him by faith today. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. We're going to sing a very simple song of decision. This is an opportunity for you to respond. You say, what is there to respond to? Maybe today you need to trust Jesus Christ. You don't know that that future uh, holds for you the things that I talked about in the former, that we would be taken away and kept from that judgment. Maybe you say, you know what, I've never trusted Jesus. I don't have a relationship with God. I know if these things are true, if God really is certain in all that he said, my faith is separation from God, and I don't want that. Today, you can trust him. We have members of our church that we just simply call encouragers. They gather right down here, and I would love to introduce you to one of them. If Today, the need of your life is to to be saved, is to trust Jesus Christ. You come, and I'll introduce you, and they can share with you from God's word how to be saved. Maybe you need to join this church. Maybe as you came and you heard Levi and Lindsay speak and you you sang with us, you said, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of. A church that values the Bible. A church that's hungry to reach the nations. A church that understands God has taken this thing places. I've got to just... Piggyback off of what McKenzie said. We had over 40 boys come for our trail life meeting. And we're going to continue to reach the next generation. Why? That's an intentional focus. We want to see disciples made out of those young boys. I want them to grow up to know and follow and love Jesus Christ. And we're well on our way to doing that through the ministries of this church. But we need laborers. We need workers. And Jesus told us to pray for that. Maybe today, as you prayed that earlier, you said, God, here am I. Send me. Whatever the need is in your life, let's stand together and you let God have his way. We're going to sing through one time.